Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, I'm always excited to hop on the podcast, and I'm not going to say we didn't have a fun one planned originally. Of course we did. We had plenty of fun stuff to talk about, but it is uh, is even a little bit better that we get to start this episode talking about Shohei Otani. It just puts a smile on my face. (laughs) Uh, But before we jump into that, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a rainy day in New Jersey. The fall baseball games were canceled, which makes me sad, but not sad. Not really, because we needed a day off. Yeah, sometimes those those come at, at the best possible time. You know, I remember <laughs> playing through high school. It was always every once in a while, you know, you have a big test that week or something, or, or it's just been a busy couple months. And then look at that. It's raining. Oh, no, the field's muddy. Got to take a day off. Bummer. So uh, my my twelve year old is on two different teams and his uh, one of his teams is terrible and they're just like you know they've only won one game and we realized it, we were playing the bottom half of the standings and now we got the top half and we lost the last game twenty to four so like oh, that got rained out okay <laughs> we're not gonna get murdered today <laughs> silver linings that's what it's all about yeah well I I for one am ready to jump into this. Um, this uh, this news just broke kind of out of nowhere today uh, that the Angels have come to an agreement with Shohei Otani, just a one-year agreement, just $30 million for uh, 2023, his final year of arbitration. Uh, but that's, it caught me way off guard. I mean, I, I had had in the back of my mind that his final year of arbitration was going to be very, very strange uh, because he, he bought out his previous two years of arbitration um, with a two-year, $8.5 million contract. And some of the reasoning behind that was, you know, he started his career, he, he was a, a huge impact player his rookie season, uh, but then there was the Tommy John surgery, and he also had kind of a down offensive season in there in, in 2020. And so, obviously, all the potential in the world for him, but he didn't have, you know, didn't have the most inspiring first few seasons of his career beyond that beyond that rookie year. And so there were some question marks about his health, about how good he really was, about how long he'd be able to keep pitching, especially after the Tommy John. And so he locked in eight and a half million dollars to buy out those first two years of arbitration. At the time, it maybe looked a little bit light, but nothing too out of the ordinary. And then he proceeded to put together back to back to back to back. He put together two of the most amazing seasons of all time between 2021 and 2022 and uh, it was really hard to judge how uh, how the arbitration system would handle that. The arbitration system is based almost entirely on precedent, and there was none for Otani. There's no case, let alone any case of somebody signing a, a, a small deal like that and then just becoming an a MVP candidate both of the following two years. That's rare on its own, but when you factor in that he's a two-way player and and just all of these records that he's setting left and right. And we know the arbitration system cares a lot about uh, some of the more traditional stats and, and milestones and things like that. I don't know how it would have handled him. I think it could have gotten a little messy. It could have been a big question mark hanging over him if the Angels did decide to entertain tra- trade offers for him. If, if the acquiring team doesn't know if he's making $15 million or $30 million or $35 million or whatever, that could be a bit of an issue, a bit of a hang-up. Um, so yeah, when you take a step back, it makes some sense that they came to an agreement now, whether it's, 
whether it's with the intent of keeping him in town for 2023 or if it is with the intent of just getting some some security making sure we know what we're working with heading into the offseason as they look into trading him whichever the case is makes a lot of sense to get this done now yeah um i think it makes a lot of sense for from a trade perspective because now you have cost certainty so it removes that sense of i don't know what we're paying him and so it just makes it a lot easier to negotiate because you know that's that's settled um so to your point about like the the difficulties of arbitration so the way it normally works is you know every every case is slightly different but in the aggregate the first year of arbitration the way it's set up in the way you know research has shown you get about 25 percent of your market value in the first year and then it tends to build on top of that so if you had you know, $2 million in your first year of arbitration, you typically get something close to a 50% raise each of the next two. So you'd get 3 million, let's say, in your second year of arbitration and four and a half in your third year. Most of the cases kind of follow that pattern. But this one is odd because A, he's a two-way player. B, to your point, he had that, that you know, buyout of the earlier years. You wondered if those were really precedent-setting or not. And so there's not really, I agree with you, there's not really any precedent at all. So we erred on the side of conservative, and I just, you know, did it myself. I just doubled. He was making five and a half this year, which is criminal. <laughs> and we said, okay, it's 11. Um, let's just double that and see what happens because typically you would get a 50% raise, but that's not really an arbitration. So like, who knows? Anyway, so clearly we were a little bit low. Um, now, if you look at it from the point of view of, oh, he's getting 60% of his market value, um, you know, we have his field value at 80 um, because he's a two-way player. Well, close to it anyway. <clears throat> so you know, 60% of 80 is like 48 million, if I do my math right, something like that. Um, so he's getting 30, so he's still getting a little bit under. But then again, the precedent, the only thing that came close was Mookie Betts was, I believe, 27 million in his final year of arbitration. So he's, you know, he's not going to get 48, but he's, you know, he, you know, coming close to that, I think, you know, I think they kind of split the difference there and said, okay, we need 30. And, and I think everybody wins. So from our, our valuation standpoint, um, like I said, we had him around 80 million in field value. So, or I think it was 82. Anyway, you subtract 30 from that and you've got 52, 53 in surplus value, which if you're looking at trade scenarios is about what we think it would take in player capital to get him from the angels for just that last year. And then we're going to go into all these scenarios about who can afford to sign him long-term, but just for the last year of his contract, he still has a lot of surplus value. Thanks to, uh, Kyle Body, by the way, for retweeting our tweet today about that. And he was, I think he was um, as just kind of just, you know, saying, wow, that's amazing because, you know, he is a two-way player. And that's how valuable he would be on paper. You're getting 30 million. You're paying him 30 million. You still got 50-ish million in surplus. That's a heck of a player. He's right. Yeah. And it just goes to what we say a lot of the time where we talk about kind of the S-shaped curve of, of dollars per war, if you want to simplify it to that where nobody's paying a one more player $8 million. That's the, There's just a, too many one-win players, so the supply outweighs the demand, and it pushes their price point down a little lower. On the other end of it, when Mike Trout signed his big deal, he was a perennial 9-10 win player, and they weren't paying him $80 million a year. There's kind of a cap on this on realistically how much a team can allocate to even the best of players. So... Truly, even if he were to go out and say, I'm signing a one-year deal, 
I, I don't think we quite get near that. Uh, let, let's assuming theoretically saying that he was a free agent this upcoming season. I don't think we get anywhere near that 80 million figure on a one-year deal for him. It's kind of the theoretical maximum, right? But it's just so logistically impossible for a team to to allocate their money in that way. For even even the richest of teams, that's a third of their payroll in one guy. A lot of teams, it's <laughs> you look at the A's, that's double their payroll <laughs> in one guy. Um, so yeah, it, it is still by all means incredibly impressive that he gets 30 million in his final year of arbitration it's it shatters the record by a long shot for the largest raise in arbitration and it's it's kind of cheating since it comes from such a low baseline the five and a half that was kind of not even arbitration um and it also as you mentioned breaks the record for the highest arbitration salary period over bets and i think it's a pretty clear sign that everybody's kind of on the same page here. He's going to be breaking 40 million a year. If he keeps this up and hits free agency after 2023, it's going to be more than 40 a year uh, on that contract. And yeah, this is a pretty good sign in that direction. I I did see a couple of kind of nonsense tweets uh, from, from a couple of national baseball writers who don't need to be named suggesting he should have gotten like 50 million. That's just not how the system works. And people should probably know that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, all bets are off when it comes to free agency, but I do think the S Kirk will play a role in that one as well. You know, I could see him getting 50 because he's a two way player, you know, um, but he's probably not going to get 60, for example. But you can see that maybe stretching that 50 out for 10 ish years or so, which would make him a $500 million player. Um, but the other thing I thought that was curious was that um, Perry Manassian, the GM of the Angels, um, told reporters that he's not going to have a press conference about it. So he's staying quiet. And I'm curious why that is. I don't want to speculate, but we know that the Angels have announced that they're looking for someone to buy them. Um, So that puts Perry's job probably in doubt. Um, We haven't heard much about the sale, so we don't know to what degree, you know, this signing, you know, impacts that. But if we take Artie Moreno at his word and say, yeah, he is trying to sell the team, um, you know, it does, it, it is curious, the timing, um, from a, from a, if you're, if you're buying the team, you at least want to know what you're paying your players, right? So that's probably another reason to, to lock him in. Um, but everybody else is being quiet because who knows if they'll be around next year, I'm guessing. Uh, so I don't know what's going on with that, but I, I found it very curious. To clarify on the, uh, uh, on the $50 million thing, those, the writers were suggesting that he should have gotten that. The, uh, next year in his final year of arbitration and so mm-hmm. that was yeah, never going to happen yeah. yeah right um and then yeah there's, there's a lot of factors at play there with the angels that could also just be as simple as it's the last week of the season we got the playoff race winding down we got the aaron judge home run chase we'll talk about it a little bit more later in the episode but maybe they just don't or maybe mlb would rather the angels not take any of that spotlight away from either of those two things just to announce the the contract in a press conference kind of deal and it's also mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if i've ever seen has there been a press conference for for these kind of year-to-year arbitration deals i, don't, I feel like those don't happen too often yeah. i feel like it's uh, more yeah, so when a, yeah. a longer term there might have been one for bets i couldn't tell you but that was also before they traded him so probably yeah. not <laughs> yeah those are fair points well we shall see with Otani. It's going to be, just like everything else <laughs> surrounding him, it's going to be fascinating. 
and I can't can't wait to see it unfold. Just a just a nice little blip here at the end of the year. A little little transaction news before things get quiet for the playoffs. Um, we do have a couple of other notable transactions, somewhat surprisingly. So the Mariners extended Luis Castillo, their big trade deadline acquisition. Uh, it's a five-year, $108 million extension. It has a vesting option for the 2028 season that could bring it up to $133 million over those six years. Um, so it's the average annual value there is about, it's a little bit over $20 million, uh, $20, $21, 22000000 million, something in that range. Uh, for Luis Castillo, which is a little bit puzzling, it seems a little bit low for him since he's so good <laughs> and he, he had a couple of rough seasons scattered in there, but it seems like he's kind of locked in as, as this is who he is now. Maybe he's not, uh, you know, a top five, top 10, like capital A ace kind of guy, but he's at the very worst, a very good number two pitcher. Um, and that's part of why the Mariners were willing to give up so much talent for him at the deadline. Um, effectively, his, as John tweeted out from, from the Baseball Trade Values account, uh, this extension didn't really change his surplus value too much. It just went down a tiny bit. Uh, previously, it was at 26.3. Now it's at 24.5. So uh, you can kind of look at that as maybe some that Castillo left on the table. On the other hand, that uh, that's actually primarily the 2023 season where he was not going to get market value anyway since it was his final, final year of arbitration. So you could look at it as, okay, he locked in the 2023 season at kind of his arbitration rate and then got market value for the next four years plus that potential uh, sixth year on the deal. So you could look at it either way. Yeah, that's exactly uh, the way I, I sort of looked at it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and keep in mind, you know, he's had some injury issues a little bit, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, there were some caveats in the deal, like if he has shoulder surgery or something like that, you know, then they, that changes the value of the option. Um, some some protective measure on the back end to protect the Mariners, you know, just in case he does start to fall apart from a health perspective. And, you know, one wonders if, you know, seeing the medicals beforehand, that might have affected the, you know, the ultimate numbers as well. But nonetheless, it is, does come up as a pretty fair deal, to your point, you know, when you just sort of say, okay, that's that arbitration year that he would have had in 23, you know, is, and, and the years after it's basically a wash from where it was. So, you know, he's not getting any, not getting any more or less than what he would have made in, you know, so, so from that perspective, I think it's fine. I do think the ultimate point here though, is that it locks him in for the Mariners four or five more years or so and in their window, which is what they wanted. They didn't, they care more about competing right now than they do about surplus value. So good for them. Yeah, taking a step back there a little bit with the Mariners, uh, it seems very, very clear that they're they're pushing. This is their window, like you said, and they actually just made their first playoff appearance in 21 years. Congrats to them. Really cool moment. Um, but they still, uh, they got some, a little bit of payroll room for next year. This year they were, uh, and this is going off of roster resource fan graphs. Uh, this year they totaled $142 million-ish. Uh, by the luxury tax, and for 2023, they're estimated at 126. Granted, that's losing uh, Adam Frazier, Mitch Haniger, and Kirk Casali, as well as Matthew Boyd and Carlos Santana. None of, none of those are huge names. They'll probably look into bringing Haniger back. Uh, but what I'm getting to here is I think there's they're pushing right now, and they've locked up Julio. They just locked up Castillo. They have Robbie Ray around for a while. Earlier in the season, they locked up J.P. Crawford. 
they've got a really solid core in place here. And uh, I think you're going to look at them being pretty aggressive in the offseason to add some offense because that's that's pretty clearly the spot that they're lacking the most. they got a really impressive young rotation. Uh, they could just use another solid bat or two somewhere. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not getting ahead of myself here. I'm mostly excited to watch this playoff run from them because they're such a fun team, so easy to root for. The underdogs, they broke the streak, the, the drought, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I'm also very intrigued to see what they do this offseason because there's a lot of spaces on that lineup that they could improve in a lot yeah. of like creative different ways. Yeah, I could see them in the mix for an Otani trade, for example, because um, they have the money to pay his salary and some prospects left over to, to, to dangle. Um, so, and, you know, they have a history of, uh, you know, wooing Japanese players, so that, that might make some sense. Um, but yeah, they're definitely going to be busy. Jerry Depoto will definitely be busy with, you know, the free agent market and he always loves to move and make trades. So it is going to be fascinating. Absolutely. Uh, one other small transaction to talk about from honestly, one of the busiest teams in baseball this season from a transaction standpoint, uh, they, they didn't do a ton at the trade deadline, but the Braves, man, they just... They they like their team and they said you guys are sticking around and you, you got to totally. respect it. It's got to be so fun as a fan that you can buy a Matt Olson jersey and a Michael Harris jersey and you know I bet one of these weeks we'll hear that they're they've locked up Von Grissom and you can go get his jersey. It's it's really impressive what they've done and you know Dansby Swanson is kind of that that name that was that's left out of the loop the one odd man out uh, where he's still hit expected to be a free agent after the season. They haven't locked him up quite yet. Uh, but the kind of second hidden name behind him, they did go ahead and lock up, and that's Charlie Morton. Uh, Morton's an interesting case because, you know, he's had this late career resurgence, and there's been some kind of buzz the entire time that he might be a guy that locks, uh, that hangs it up a little bit early, that he retires, you know, may, doesn't push it all the way to his late 30s and, and make the game force him away. He he calls it quits on his own terms. Um retires a little early and so there was some buzz about that when he was with the Rays and then some more when he signed with the Braves of oh this might just be his last year kind of thing uh, but it seems like he's still having a good time there and I don't blame him seems like a fun team to play for uh, he's been pretty okay for them this year maybe a bit of a step back from his usual but he's still a, a solid member of that rotation and this is a very reasonable deal that they've extended him to it's just a one-year deal 20 million dollars and then a club option for the 2024 season, also at $20 million with no buyout. So uh, based on the model, we have his field value projected to be 18.6 for 2023. And so it's just the slightest of overpays. There's a gap of 1.4 there. Uh, but you can even look at that and say, well, this deal has some upside baked into it. Because for 2024, there's that club option. And there's no buyout for it. So it's only positive that they have that club option where if Morton is fantastic and his projections spike up a little bit, boom, they got an affordable year there. So you can call it, even if you if you want to nitpick and, and complain about the $1 million difference, which you shouldn't because that's that's a rounding error, uh, there's that little bit of, of uh, upside baked into it as well that really makes it an even deal. Yeah, so one of the patterns I'm starting to see is, you know, Charlie Morton's 38. He'll be 39 next year. And when you normally look at her aging curves, you don't see a lot of 39-year-old starters anymore. But more recently, we have. We've seen Justin Verlander's getting up there. You know, uh, Adam Wainwright's been really good, and he's over 40. Um, you know, Scherzer's getting up there, and he's making 43 million a year. And what that 
he's starting to suggest is that guys are taking care of themselves a little bit better and they're you know maybe the aging curves need to be adjusted i was thinking about that as i was looking at this deal like okay well normally you would we would knock off a lot more for the injury risk and sort of performance you know decline um but the braves are telling us no we trust charlie morton to stay in shape basically and you know we're going to get pretty close to what we got from him this year and i think that's an interesting trend uh to watch as we go uh, but yeah uh, it felt like just a teeny bit of overpay but they can they can do that once in a while they will overpay a little bit they overpaid for Rizal Iglesias in the trade at the trade deadline but you know they're they're trying to win another world series so they're like the guys so and, you know it's a rounding error for them but it's interesting to watch these sort of older pitchers get deals like this there's absolutely an economics term for this that I'm blanking on because it's been uh, how many years now? Six, seven since I've taken an economics class. Hmm. Uh, but it's it's kind of they self-select, right? Yeah, because well, it's a survivor it's, bias, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It seems like there's kind of this invisible wall at age 35, 36, 37, where yeah, the, the aging curve does apply to most guys, where you're not going to be the same pitcher you were when you were 29 once you make it up to 34, 35, 36, and then you're you're going to continue to decline, and then maybe by 37 you're pushed into the bullpen or you're bouncing around on a minor league deal, and then you're out of the league. David Price it, is a good example. He's in his yeah. late 30s, and he's you know pretty much done. <laughs> he got pushed mm-hmm. to the bullpen, and that's that's he's nothing like the old David Price. Yeah, or Felix Hernandez was on the younger yeah. end of that because he started yeah. so much earlier and, and <laughs> used so many bullets as like a 20-year-old. Yeah. Um, but it seems like if you are one of those guys that can beat that, then maybe the, the aging curve isn't really a curve anymore. Maybe it doesn't apply to you, or at least not as harshly as it seems like it would. You know, if, if you can be an effective starter at 37, 38, maybe there's something to it where you're not going to have quite as much. It's something about your body type or your delivery or, or something or just just your you know pitchability makeup learning how to pitch yeah. that kind of thing yeah. where you can fight father time and you can push into your 40s without as aggressive of a decline as expected and and it you know it, like you mentioned could be survivorship bias kind of a thing where yeah right now we have Scherzer and Verlander being incredibly effective but maybe next year one of them falls off a cliff and kind of throws this whole thing out the window but that it seems like a the, the sample size is so small it would be hard to really perform any kind of study on this uh but it, it seems like it could be a very real thing yeah i mean don't get me wrong there is definitely decline as you get older father time is undefeated and that goes across all sports when you get older um <laughs> I, I can attest to that as well I've, get, I've gotten older and slower um but um yeah but there's also something you said for keeping your body in shape and i think what you're getting at is some guys um you know have found a way to to pitch so that it it doesn't stress their body as much as other guys it seems you know and maybe charlie morton's one of these um where he can he, he can do it easily um it seems like adam wainwright has figured that out as well but you know they're all there there's still some decline in there but it's not as much as it would be for you know some of their peers um but it's hard to know from a model standpoint who's who you know, is he, you know, but the Braves obviously can tell the difference because they committed $20 million to it. So they're saying, yeah, no, Charlie Morton, he'll stay in shape. So we got to trust him on that. So hopefully they know what they're doing. Yeah. And they've, they've done such a good job lately that it's, it's hard yeah. not to trust them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's it for the actual MLB player transactions. Uh, but 
we have a little bit more front office activity. Uh, one of these is an update on a team we've talked a lot about already, but the Tigers officially hired Scott Harris from the Giants as their president of baseball operations. I don't have anything specific on Scott Harris. I know he's been pretty highly regarded for a while, and it is, uh, we, we talked about in the last episode, that Tiger's job might be ripe for one of these guys that's kind of blocked by one of the superstar baseball mm-hmm. ops uh, VPs or GMs or whatever their title is, um, and they're not going to be promoted over that guy, and so they can come run the show in Detroit instead. And that seems like exactly what's happening here. Scott Harris was blocked by Farhan Zaidi, and maybe Farhan Zaidi hasn't quite earned the reputation of a Billy Bean or uh, a Dave Dombrowski or, or anyone quite at that level, but he's he's pretty comfortably in the next tier below that. The Giants, as an organization, he's pretty clearly their guy and not going anywhere for a while. They've trusted him with building this team and i guess you could call it a rebuild but uh but but controlling this team and and he's he's done some things to earn that trust and he continues to make smart moves every year it seems like but harris was never going to pass him in that role so now he gets to go run the tigers instead and he'll have his work cut out for him as we discussed in the past with uh this kind of rut that they're in of their top prospects have made it to the bigs, but they haven't performed and they don't really have much around those guys at the big league level, but they also don't have the strongest farm behind them. And so it's a lot of question marks in Detroit. Uh, It's going to be a challenge for Scott Harris for sure, but it's the kind of situation where if he turns them around, especially if he does it quickly, then that's how you get yourself. uh, That's how you get yourself in that conversation as one of the top GMs, top baseball ops guys is, is taking on a team like this and fixing them. Yeah. I think it's a great hire because I think he has been kind of a rising star and he said a couple of things in his press conference that I thought were really interesting. Uh, the first thing he pointed out, you know, they're sort of uh, talked about their priorities. And the first one he said is acquire young talent, which means he's probably going to go the route of like, we weren't sure if they were going to stick with the current, you know, and just maybe spend money around them, but even though they haven't really established themselves, which, you know, the message he sent to, uh, in that, you know, with acquiring young talent being first priority suggests to me that it's a rebuild of a rebuild. Um, I'm not sure how they're going to do that, but maybe they take on a bad contract with a post-prog attached. They're going to find ways to, to, to get more young talent. But it also kind of spoke, I think, to the industry's perspective of acquiring young talent. It's definitely been the, the trend, you know, over the last decade or so. And you can see... You know, in our prospect values, for example, they're reasonably high in you know in terms of the top fifty, top one hundred. Um, you know, because those are those guys are prized because you get them for six years at way below market cost. You know, that's where everybody wants to go. And so him saying that just sort of validated that. And so I felt like okay, our model typically kind of bears that out when you see these young guys who have a lot of surplus value. You know, and that's you know that's why. The other thing he said was, um, towards the end, he said, dominate the strike zone, uh, both, you know, from a hitting perspective and a pitching perspective, because everything flows from there. And I don't want to get too off track here, but I I kept thinking about that. Okay, well, obviously, you know, if you, you know, if you're a hitter, you know, swing at good pitches, don't swing at bad ones. But a lot of hitters can't do that. But the best ones, that's what they do. Look at Juan Soto and his walk rate. For example, he'll take a walk, no problem. Uh, but it'll also damage the ball uh, when he wants to, and you know he's not swinging a junk. 
pitchers who can control the strike zone. You know, it sets the defense in a way that, you know, they're more effective. And his point was that everything, there's this whole domino effect that happens when you control the strike zone. All good things happen from there. So so that you win more games, you're, you know, the defense falls into line, everything works. And I thought that was a great way of looking at it. Yeah, those are really good points. And I'm really interested to see the direction he takes things here. Uh, like I said, I... <laughs> I don't know what I would do here. <laughs> uh, there isn't a clear path forward for them. You mentioned kind of rebuilding the rebuild. Well, where do you even start with that? We mentioned in the past that they just don't have many tradable pieces at the big league level right now that yeah. would really help them restock. And so are they just going to be kind of treading water? I could see them taking a bit of a giant's approach. I mean, <laughs> I, I started to say that sentence before remembering that Scott Harris just came from the giants <laughs> but mm-hmm, exactly it could be it could be a giants approach yeah now that i now that i think about it, it's pretty analogous i mean the the giants when farhan kind of took over they didn't necessarily have a torkelson and a green trying to figure it out at the big league level and that kind of complicates things for the tigers because it's harder to do a full rebuild if you've got these two guys that are they should be big league ready and starting to perform in the next year or two. And it's kind of like your clock has already started. But it was a similar situation in San Francisco where they had a lot of these veterans who weren't necessarily all performing, but they were all kind of locked up to some significant money. And it seemed like they were a little bit behind the times with uh, how they operated their team in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of the bullpen, in terms of, of pitching in general, what they prioritized as well as like matchups. They didn't, they, they weren't quite as with the times on some of that stuff. And that's how the Tigers feel as well. And so maybe it makes all the sense in the world that Scott Harris is the guy that comes over and he's going to be, you know, maybe it's not a full rebuild because there isn't really much for them to rebuild with. You know, nobody's trading for Javier Baez right now or Eduardo Rodriguez and it seems a little premature to be trading a Casey Mize or a Matt Manning when they're both hurt or Tariq Skubal also hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but instead, maybe it's the kind of thing where it's, it, they wanted to bring in a guy to find those Mike Yastrzemski types to, to find yeah. the Austin Slaters and start making something out of nothing in some of these other positions where it's just been a black hole for a while. And so, you know, maybe they luck into some wild card run, uh, you know, Green and Torkelson develop next year and Rodriguez is is a staple for the rotation. Tariq Skubal makes it back healthy and, and they find a couple of these role players around the diamond to, to put together a 500-ish team. Or they just, you know, find value in a guy like a Yastrzemski type and they can trade them away for prospects and kind of jumpstart the rebuild that way. So, uh, yeah, Scott Harris... I hadn't really thought of the the comparison there between the Tigers and the Giants of a few years ago, but I really like that fit a lot more now that I now that I kind of put those two pieces together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, it's funny he had to catch himself because he um, at one point you know kind of said, "Well, you know, over at the Giants, we didn't think much of their farm." When he was speaking about the Tigers' farm, you're like. Yeah, it was like sort of validating that the Tigers have one of the weakest farms in baseball um, from his point of view, where he used to sit in the Giants, and he didn't see much there. And that's kind of the way we see it, too. They're sort of in our bottom third, and so that makes the job even harder. But he also mentioned that, you know, they've got to do a better job of developing because some of those, you know, a good organization, we talked about the Dodgers in the past, 
will pop up guys right and left that like, whoa, he was a 17th round draft pick and all of a sudden he's up and he's doing, you know, like they will develop guys. And so the Tigers really hadn't been doing much of that. You know, their top guys would come up, but, you know, there weren't really any, you know, the, the maybe Spencer Turnbull, there weren't really any surprises that sort of bubbled up. So they need to do a better job kind of finding those nuggets in there. And so I think he's going to prioritize that too. So good for them. Mm-hmm. All right, the next team, the other team with a front office transaction, also had quite a bit of difficulty with the development side. Uh, so the Royals fired Dayton Moore. Uh, he's been there for a long time. Uh, it looks like, uh, according to this press release, 16 years. <laughs> uh, it certainly feels like it. And he's got kind of a mixed legacy. It's, it's, I wasn't sure how to feel about this when, when the news came through. Because uh, obviously he led the team to the World Series in 2015 and, and to the World Series win, I guess. Uh, and that broke a long drought for the Royals. And the way he got there was this fun, interesting, you know, I don't want to call it anti-analytics in any way, but it was kind of a, it was kind of hearkening back to more traditional baseball, the contact and speed. And and they really were one of the, the teams that revolutionized the kind of super bullpen and, and reprioritized relievers and this, the three-headed monster they had back there with Wade Davis, Greg Holland, and Kelvin Herrera. Um, and so you can look at that and say that, that, that he did a great job to put that team together. And then after that, he tried way too hard to hold that team together after its, its time had passed. And it seemed like the Royals just never committed to the rebuild in any kind of way. They always thought they were better than than they actually were and then the rest of the baseball world expected them to be. They traded for Andrew Benintendi for some reason. It, his moves after the World Series were just weird. And I think there's another timeline in which either he makes different decisions or someone else is in charge and the Royals are competitive right now. And they've been competitive for a couple years because they commit... they since the window was closing and it closed and they sold off some of those pieces, traded away Moustakis and Hosmer and Kane and Escobar before their value dipped to zero. And uh, now they're, they rebuilt the farm and they, they developed their players and now they're another contending team again. There's, there's another timeline where that happens, but that's just not where we are right now. And especially looking at what they do have and what they have had on the prospect side in recent years, they really accumulated some an awesome group of pitching prospects, and almost all of them to this point have flamed out entirely. Uh, Brady Singer has been fantastic this year, and he's not getting enough attention. But other than him, Chris Bubich was a big name, and he hasn't done anything. Daniel Lynch. Um, oh, my goodness. Jackson there's, Cower. There's, uh, yes, Cower. Um, there was another... Uh, a big early round pick of theirs that I'm blanking on right now. It's a Lacey that is yeah, Lacey. installed out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Carlos Hernandez is another name. They, they just had a, a whole stock of pitching prospects and it was easy to get excited about them, especially with Bobby Witt kind of behind them and some other offensive names and just none of them have panned out at the big league level. And so I, I can see it being time for, for, for more to leave. And, uh, J.J. Piccolo, who's been there for a while as well and was previously the general manager, he was promoted to replace Dayton Moore. And I think a lot of what he said right out the gate was uh, very encouraging for the Royals and for their fans. He was talking a lot about how we, we got to get with the times. We, we kind of fell behind 
Uh, we need to be more analytical in our approach here. We need to improve our development. He said all the right things, everything you're looking for. Granted, it's it's one thing to say them. It's another thing to actually execute. But there's so much talent in that organization. And, and it's been a weird season for Bobby Witt Jr. He has been graded pretty horribly off or defensively. And the bat's been okay, flashy. You know, it, it hasn't been horrible, hasn't been great for, for Bobby Witt Jr. But you can see that there's superstar potential there. And there's so much potential on the pitching side still. And there's there Vinny Pasquantino is excellent. And Nick Prado's on the way. And there's some other names there. There's Melendez. reason for yeah Melendez. I can't believe I forgot him. <laughs> um, but there's there's reason for optimism here. If if Piccolo can really revamp the development side of things and reprioritize analytics within that organization, they've got the talent there. They just need to kind of put it together. I, I definitely. They are in a better spot right now, I'd say, than the Tigers, for sure. Yeah, I mean, they've obviously brought up a lot of those young guys just to see what they had. Um, a couple of things, though. Um, you know, it's been clear for a while now that Dayton Moore, one of his sort of blind spots is he tended to be loyal to a fault. Like, he likes his, his guys. He likes his Kansas City guys. And a little too much. You know, he didn't trade Whit Merrifield when he should have a couple of years ago. Um, and gave Hunter Dozier a contract that he should not have. You know, I think he sometimes has blinders on. I think that's that was a big reason why he got fired. Because he was thinking more with his heart, perhaps. And he's a great guy. Don't get me wrong. He does wonderful things for charity and all that. He's a really big-hearted guy. But sometimes that can get away in the way of making good, smart, you know, decisions with your head. And I think I think that could be the case there as well. But one other interesting point is that J.J. Piccolo has pretty much followed Dayton Moore around in his career. They were together, I think, back in, you know, college days and then with, with the Braves. And Piccolo's been kind of his main lieutenant, right-hand guy for a while. So it makes you wonder whether things will change that much with him in charge because he's been doing things Dayton's way. But on the other hand, maybe... He is fresh enough to say, okay, now we're going to do things differently. You would want to see some little bit more of a sense of fresh, fresh thinking. And I'm not sure, you know, how much you'll get from just promoting the guy who was the number two under more all those years. So, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong uh, for Kansas City's sake. Uh, but anyway, Dayton Moore, great guy. It was though, you know, he's kind of old school and probably, uh, you know, time to leave. So, and, you know, same could be said of Avila and Detroit. So the old cool, old school guys are gradually getting replaced by the younger, more analytical guys. And this is just yet another example of it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it would be it would be odd to me if either A, the Royals fired Dayton Moore just to replace him with a guy they knew was going to act in the same way, or B, for J.J. Piccolo to see that Dayton Moore was just fired and then go, all right, I'm just going to go do the same things. That'll be great for my job security. So <laughs> there's going to be at least some kind of, there's going to be some, I think, noticeable change, but it, it is a good point that who knows, is this just more of bringing them back to the closer to the middle of the pack in terms of mm -hmm. analytics and modern era thinking in, in, in an operation, or are they actually going to be cutting edge now all of a sudden i don't think i would go that far i think it's going to be more of a push toward the middle of the pack there yeah it's like okay we'll get the younger guy who's more analytical but he's a kansas city guy and he's so so we're splitting the difference we still feel comfortable with kind of putting both both camps so okay all right um one other quick thing i wanted to hit on um so baseball savant last week uh released 
uh, new stats. And this is this is one of the I love this part of the Statcast era. Is just every now and then you'll just be going about your business and ooh, new new little stat just dropped. And sometimes it's just kind of eh, this is just for fun, or sometimes it is it is pretty meaningful. And I think we're we're very slowly heading toward getting some sort of Statcast war, which will be I can't wait. <laughs> That'll be really cool. Oh my god, uh, yeah. But this newest one is is really interesting to me it's it's about arm strength it's it's uh, i i'm gonna link to the article from mike petriello here from mlb.com um it's not specifically average arm strength it's kind of the average of their high effort throws and so it's different by position you know if we just took the average 10 percent of throws from first baseman we're still getting a lot of just lobs back to the pitcher or or something like that. And so we're not actually testing that player's arm strength. So Petriello goes into a lot more depth on exactly what's being tracked here. Uh, but we have max effort throws, and then they're kind of... Uh, they're, the, the max effort throw velocity, as well as their kind of average max effort throw velocity, if that makes sense. And so there's a ton to unpack here. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into it, because this is kind of out of our scope. But the part I do want to talk about is he goes into depth here on infielders and how players throw differently at different positions because obviously you're going to have to throw a lot harder to get the ball from shortstop to first base or third base to first base than from second base to first base. And a lot of those second base throws are close range. You're not trying to take your first baseman's head off. (laughs) Um, And so there's some notable differences there when, when players play multiple positions in their arm strength. Uh, but one player in particular that he talks about is Trevor Story, where he had some throwing issues in his last couple years with the Rockies. Uh, he was previously one of the best defensive shortstops in baseball, but then these kind of throwing issues cropped up, and it was partially a, an elbow injury. And then with, with the Red Sox this year, obviously it took him a long time to sign, and he ended up signing to play second base with them. And part of the thinking there was that he would be able to slide over to shortstop if Xander Bogarts left in free agency uh, after this 2022 season. He has an opt-out, and and he's pretty likely to at least use the opt-out, if not, go sign somewhere else entirely. Um, And so the thinking was, okay, great, story is great, shortstop insurance for Bogarts leaving, he can just slide right over there. And on the surface, sure, story's been, he's graded as an excellent defensive second baseman this year. And so you figure, okay, his defensive issues are behind him. He can just slide back over. But Petriello went in depth on it here, and his throws have not been impressive by any means. It it looks like either his arm is just weaker now, or maybe he's still battling some sort of an injury. But both on plays at second base, he he ranks pretty low in this this throw metric, um, as well as specifically plays that, like, brought him more to the left side of the infield, uh, I guess to his right uh, as he's playing second base, but the longer throws that are more similar to a shortstop's throws, those have been pretty weak. And so I kind of, I don't know if I have anything specific that I'm saying here. I kind of just wanted to open, (laughs) open the floor with you, John, for discussion about this kind of thing and how you think, how would you handle Trevor's story, especially considering the shift uh, limitations and and how you think this kind of all interacts with the second base adjustment that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and 
um, what the future of that might be. I think the, the answer to a lot of that stuff is, I don't know, we'll have to wait and see, but I'd be curious to, <laughs> to hear what you're thinking right now. Yeah, well, it's interesting about Story. That's very illuminating because he was always viewed as one of the more athletic shortstops in the game, which includes arm strength. And it hadn't been a problem for him before, but to your point, maybe he he is injured or something happened uh, to affect that in his particular case. So a guy you, I would have thought that, you know, could have slid over to shortstop and, you know, that's showing you maybe he, maybe he couldn't, maybe the Red Sox already knew that, which is why they plugged him in at second. Uh, so that's the first point. Okay. Maybe he's getting older. Maybe he's, he's lost, you know, a little bit of strength there. Um, but look, traditionally second base is, is the place you put for the guy who has less arm strength. And that became even more of a thing with the shift because, you know, first of all, they didn't have to range as far. And second of all, you know, they could get a sneak over a little bit closer to the first base base. Like, not much of a throw. Um, so you could put Mike Moustakis there or whoever, you know, Nolan Gorman, you know, guys who are you know, obviously not, you know, Willie Randolph kind of second baseman. Um, so we'll see with the shift, you know, how that goes back. Do you need a little bit more arm strength because you're going to have to cover more ground and make throws occasionally, like a Colton Longwood from behind second base? Maybe. And so maybe that'll put a little bit more of a, uh, give them a little bit more value. It is obviously too early to tell. I've seen some some estimates that say, yeah, they'll, the defensive value of a second baseman uh, will increase a little bit because they're going to have to cover more ground. That's just going to happen. Um, but we don't know for sure yet. What we still do know is that light heading in, like, excuse me, light hitting infielders are generally not valued by the market. So however it works out, they still get a hit. So the hitter, you know, the more offensive second base types and infield types in general will always be more valued than the, you know, golden glove types that can't hit. So that is is still kind of ground zero for me. I have a question for you, John. Is Trevor Story a light hitting infielder now? You know, he was a little disappointing, wasn't he? Yeah, so I'm, I have his numbers pulled up right here. Yeah. In 2020... Obviously, short, weird season, whatever. 117 WRC+. plus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'll, that, that, good. I, I wouldn't call that light, especially as a shortstop. Like, that's that's really good. Uh, 2021, uh, we mentioned that he was dealing with the injury, and there was, you know, the trade rumors and all of that drama. Probably didn't help him out much. But 99 WRC+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this year, 100. Average. So, yeah. I... I don't want to completely write off a guy that went in his peak. He he went rookie year, 122. Sophomore year was a slump, 82. Uh, 2018, 128. 2019, 122. 2020, 117. That, that looks like a guy who's pretty comfortably 20% above mm-hmm. average while playing solid defense up the middle. Mm-hmm. But everything has taken a step back the last two years. And so I don't really know what to make of him going forward. It's not something where we necessarily need to make anything of him going forward from our perspective because he's he's signed to that contract. He's not getting traded, uh, etc. But I I don't I don't want to say Trevor Story isn't good anymore, but I don't know if he is. <laughs> well, it's what the numbers are telling you, he's an average bat now with a you know with the arm strength kind of hurt. He's below average in in the field. So average bat, below average defender. Yeah, yeah, kind of tracks with the eye study too, lately. So, yeah, and looks like the Red Sox overpaid for him. Yeah. Huh. Well, we currently have him at negative twenty eight um, in 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 trade value. I'm. 
pretty sure that I don't actually have it pulled up on the back end, so I can't check, but I don't think we have any sort of positional adjustment uh, factored into that because he has historically been a shortstop and, and I think you and I were to. both, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and I were both kind of historically op or yeah, we, we, we've been operating under this assumption that he could easily switch back to short and be at least an average shortstop if he did. And, and that's, yeah, that's the big crux of the second base adjustment, right? Is if he's an average defensive shortstop, we don't really care if he's a league average hitter as well. That's a, that's still an above average player overall. That's, that's a, a probably a three win player, right? Average defense at short, average bat. That you take that. But if we're talking about above average defense at second base, can't play shortstop at a reasonable level, and has an average bat, that's where you start getting scared. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, Trey Turner, you know, when the Dodgers traded for him, they put a plugged him in at second because you know they had Seager at short. Um, but I don't know anyone who thought, oh, well, you know, Trey Turner is a second baseman now. No, because they plugged him right back into shortstop and he's, he's, you know, excellent there. So, you know, you got to sort of take that with a grain of salt. If they happen to be playing second base, doesn't mean they're, they're, they are second baseman. Andres Jimenez, I think, can play a great shortstop still as well. They just happen to be playing him at second. So you, it's, it's a bit of a subjective call, but you also have to look at kind of their history as well to say, you know, are they really just a second baseman? You know, and <clears throat> so, we, we don't apply that to everybody. You know, we do ask ourselves, could they play shortstop? And if so, then, you know, we leave that alone. Uh, but it's it's a case-by-case thing. Yeah, definitely. All right, uh, one last thing to talk about uh, before we, we get into your article from this past week uh, about former top prospects who uh, have, have flamed out, it seems. Uh, before we get into that, we mentioned it a little bit earlier uh, we just want to talk some Aaron Judge. There's not necessarily anything direct and immediate <laughs> trade-related, obviously, and we don't have any of the numbers prepped as far as what the model says he might get in free agency. Um, that, that'll definitely be an ongoing off-season conversation. Uh, but you you threw this in as something to talk about, and, and I agree. We just haven't talked any Aaron Judge this season, and uh, we kind of need to because, wow, what a year he's having. <laughs> okay, so, you know, being a value nerd, you know, when when the Yankees offered him that extension before the season started, I crunched the numbers. I tweeted about it saying, it's a little low. and But the reason it was low is because, you know, they didn't quite compensate him fairly enough for, you know, what he was expected to do in 2023. You know, he's making like 20-ish million in arbitration in his final year. They should have paid him 30 or so. The rest of the contract looked fine, perfectly fair. Um, but they were a little light when you sort of look at it that way. And that's, and it sounds like judges can't agree. And so we model it out. You think, okay, well, you know, he's a five, six war player. But then I looked at it, he's like, 11? He's got 11 war? Look at Fangraph's version of war. Um, you know, and not only has he just like, you know, you think, okay, well, you know, Judge is thinking, all right, I'm going to turn down that contract. And I'm going to give you a, a six war season. You know, maybe a seven, but 11? Holy smokes. So now what? I mean, I haven't crunched any numbers yet. I'm just sort of marveling at that. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day, just, you know, driving around thinking about Aaron Judge, as you do. And I I don't know what to make of him and his upcoming contract. He's going to be 31 uh, pretty early on in that deal, uh, next April. So pretty much right after he signs that contract, starts with his new team, he'll have his 31st birthday. And so 
we're probably not talking about a 10-year deal or anything like that. We're probably talking about him trying to set some sort of record for average annual value, at least for offensive players, because I don't think he's coming anywhere close to the uh, Scherzer number, uh, because he's not going to get that short term of a deal. But I've been thinking about him a lot, and I've been thinking about Chris Davis from the Orioles and how he played that big home run season into a massive contract and fell apart. And I am I am not saying by any means that Aaron Judge is Chris Davis. <laughs> I, he's a Could much more... Bit about the other Chris Davis. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> to a lesser degree, obviously, yeah. but same thing up. Yeah, but Judge is a much more complete... Yeah, uh, complete player than either of those Chris Davises, Chris Davi, Chris's <laughs> Davis. Got it. Yeah. Um, and he's he had the 8.8 win 2017 rookie year, and since then he's been pretty consistently a very valuable player. He's he had a couple years where he was struggling to stay on the field, but played 148 games in 2021. He's played every game, almost every game this season. It looks like so. I don't know how much the injury needs to be a question. You can you can go back and forth on, oh, well, he's giant. That makes him more of an injury risk as he ages. Okay, sure, I could, I could hear that argument. Um, but just from a pure performance standpoint, like no team looks at the 210 WRC plus and the 11.1 Fangraphs war. No team looks at that and says, that's the baseline for him going forward. We got to <laughs> adjust our projections. That's the new baseline. He's going to be that guy every year. We're paying him 50 million a year. But on the other hand, it's got to move the needle somewhat, right? Like how much is that moving the needle yeah. for you? He's right. historically so... been a 140, 150 ish WRC plus kind of guy. Excellent. And then he pops up out of nowhere 210. What does that right. do? Right. So is that a blip or is that the new normal or is it somewhere in between? So the way model builders do it, including us, is, you know, we give we have a weighted sort of system. We look back at the track record, but you don't wait every year equally. You wait the most recent year a little bit more. And the one before that, you know, sort of secondary. And then the one before that kind of tertiary. So you get a better sense of what that player is now, you know, whether that's good or bad. So, you know, typically you would see, oh, he was, you know, tracking, you know, it gives you a baseline and then he'll deviate from the baseline a little bit, but it gives you a sense of stability if you do it that way. And so he was tracking, you know, as a five war player or so, and then suddenly there's this blip where he's an 11 war player. Um, but, you know, that's going to be regressed a bit down to, you know, you know, how it relates to his track record. So it's definitely going to go up. It's going to move his baseline up. It's not going to base it. It's going to go up to 11, but it's going to, you know, <laughs> it's a spinal, spinal joke, spinal tap joke in here somewhere. But, um, you know, it'll go up into like, oh, he's, you know, you'll see Steamer, I think, is the first of the projection systems typically to kind of come up with the, the next season's estimates. It'll probably be like a seven, you know, I'm guessing. And so our model, we haven't crunched numbers yet either, but I'm, I'm guessing it'll be something like that as well. You know, and then in the ensuing years, you know, you'll bake in some decline because he's coming into his 30s. He may not repeat this year. So it's probably going to be in that range of like seven to six and a half to six to five, somewhere in there in the upcoming years. But that's still a lot more than he would have gotten previous to this year, which would have been like five, five and a half, you know, down to four, down to three, you know. And so it definitely moved the needle. Yeah, I guess where I'm getting with this is I could I could definitely see it being a situation where 
pretty early in the offseason, the Yankees just hand him the blank check. And, you know, I see the argument for it. They give him some record-setting number in some way. He gets his big money. He's happy with it. He gets to stay and be the new captain. And even if he doesn't age as gracefully, and if the the back end of that deal is underwater, as as you kind of expect a big contract to be, even if that happens, maybe Yankee Stadium helps him mask some of that. I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that this season has been a product of Yankee Stadium. There's been plenty of excellent articles and, and studies that show, no, he's just been insane. He, Yankee Stadium has maybe given him an extra homer or two. That's it. Um, but as he ages and maybe declines a little bit, maybe he can hide there a little bit and, and he can start just using the short porch a little more and playing right field, a smaller right field defensively. Maybe it keeps him a little healthier or helps his metrics stay a little bit better, makes him easier to hide out there. And he's got such a good arm that maybe that makes up for as he starts to lose range. So I could see that scenario where Yankees give him a big contract, works out just fine. Maybe the maybe it'll end up being an overpay by a little bit just because he did have such a massive platform year and was able to negotiate such a, a larger contract than he was prior to the season. Uh, but that nobody really cares because he's a Yankee for life possible hall of famer and uh, he he yeah yankee stadium helps him hide some of the flaws as he ages i yeah. could also see him sticking on the free agent market until like february or march because just nobody's meeting his price and i actually i'm shocked to learn that his agent is not scott boris it really feels like it should be apparently it's Paige odell i don't know who that is <laughs> but i yeah, I, I don't know which is more likely to me. I, I don't. I, I it's hard to to really imagine him being anywhere other than New York. I mean, there's been talks about San Francisco could make some sense, and maybe some other teams. I don't know, but it's hard to imagine him not wearing the pinstripes, and and especially with a season like this, he's he's next in line to be the captain if he sticks around and and wants to be that guy. So I could see it, obviously, uh, but. It, it, it's also just hard to see him having a normal free agency. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it, I could see it hanging out for a while. Yeah, because his price tags can be so high. And they obviously signaled that by turning down that that extension, which was not cheap. So, and he just said, okay, I'm just going to blow right through that. So that means his price tag has gone way up. And to your point, I'm not sure who can afford it now. So he may linger on the market for that. Um, I mean, it, there's, a part of me that's not surprised that Boris isn't his agent. I mean, he's a pretty low-key guy. He's, you know, surprisingly humble and, you know, a little on the shy side even. So you don't see him, like, you know, being loud and boisterous in a lot of commercials. You're just, you know, he's just doing his things, doing his job. And so he probably just picked an agent that sort of was like that. So get the job done, but be very smart about it, very tough about it, you know. But you don't, you don't need the bluster. Um so, yeah, I agree with you. It's going to be a very interesting offseason. I could see him setting the new AEV record um, and then Otani blowing by it the following year. It's the way the cards seem to be lining up. Yeah, could definitely see that. Um, let's see. I'm just uh, I'm just ticking through here. Uh, apparently, this Paige Odell fella is the president of PSI Sports, which is an agency I have heard of. So there we go. <laughs> it's not, okay. just, not just some nobody. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I think that's it for for news and such. Uh, as we speak, Judge is sitting at 61 homers, and they already played the game today on, on Saturday. So history will have to wait another day. 
Um, just want to just want to get it in here that uh, no, he is not going to be the single season home run record holder if he hits 62 that, that's that's still bonds we just because you don't like the numbers doesn't mean they didn't happen uh but i digress that's not what we're here to talk about uh let's jump into your article uh so you posted last week about former top prospects who are now not looking so good uh there were a handful of names that you went kind of deeper in on and then a handful that you just kind of listed off at the end uh but it all kind of speaks to really how our model handles these guys and how that's kind of changed over the recent years. Do you want to go ahead and give a rundown of that? Yeah. So um, we watch what front offices do, which sometimes doesn't match what they say, but what they do is, you know, when they, when they bring up a top prospect, you know, sometimes it's for the cup of coffee or sometimes they just need to fill a hole, but usually when they're ready to become, you know, to be seen, if they can handle the big show or not, you know, that means that the front office says, okay, we see that you're ready. Now, what happens if it turns out that they don't perform well? Well, their stock's going to drop, right? Because, you know, until you show you can handle the big leagues, you know, you're, you know, you're not quite proven yet. And so this may be a very, a case of a very highly rated prospect in the 50 or 60 range, which means all things considered that that future prospect's going to be a star. But what happens if they don't show anything? Well, all right. The, so the front office gives them a chance, and they don't show anything, and then they set them down, and then they bring them back up, and they still don't show anything, and they bring them down. And this goes on for a bit. So we give it about two years. We have found – at first when we started the model, it was three, but that wasn't quite right. So we changed it to two, and it seems to be aligning very well with market. Um, so basically, there's not an infinite leash on Joe Adele. Um He's only, you know, he's he's now had about two years worth of looks from the front office. He measured from the time he was first brought up with serious intent, and he still hasn't performed. And so, what happens in our model is, you know, once they come up, they start. We start blending their MLB side with their prospect side, and over time, it's a sliding time scale. So over time, as they get closer to that two-year mark, it's all just MLB. And and what that shows typically is you either make it or break it. And oh, by the way, you're typically running out of options if you haven't quite made it yet. They keep sending you down. And um, so that clock is ticking as well. So all of that affects your trade value. Basically, if you've had two years to figure it out, you still haven't yet. You're done um, in today's world. It You know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. You may not be done, um, but you're close to being done. And so I wanted to write an article about guys who are looking like this. Like, you know, you might still think, oh, Joe Adele, he's worth a lot in trade. Well, he's had a lot of chances and he's still not performing. And then I went into detail about some of the numbers behind the numbers, you know, looking at stat cast numbers, for example, and where they're vulnerable to pitchers. The other thing that plays in here is, you know, pitchers will get a book on them pretty quickly and they'll start throwing them things they can't hit. And if they can't hit those things, then they're stuck. So it's on the hitter at that point to adjust back. And if they can't, then they're just going to continue to dig a hole for themselves. And that's pretty much the story of what's happened with the hitters that I mentioned in this article. So Joe Adele, um, you know, he's obviously got some bad numbers. WRC plus over three years is 67. Um, You know, first came up in 2020. Uh, 2020 put up uh, accumulated minus seven F4. So you think, well, when's he going to figure it out? Well, he doesn't show any signs of figuring it out. Is the problem? He's still chasing balls out of the zone. Still got a very high K rate, you know, in the 30s, and that's just not sustainable. So, and that happens a lot with guys who are struggling. Um, this type of profile, if they've got 
you know, uh, problems chasing and problems, you know, with their plate approach, you know, that's usually game over. So um, the most likely outcome, and in, in, I say that for each of these cases with Adele, is Angels will probably give him one more chance. He has one more option year after that. And uh, if he doesn't make it next year, you know, <clears throat> he's either going to be traded for a minor prospect or DFA'd. Uh, it, it seems like a similar case to Nomar Mazzara when he came up with the Rangers and they kept giving him chances and he kept failing. And they finally just had to trade him for a very minor prospect who has since also been defaced. So not much there. So we have Adele's value at zero because of that. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the way it is. And I don't want to go through all of these, but it's a similar story for Jose Barrero, whose numbers are even worse. <laughs> um, and But he has a very similar outcome, much like Adele. Um, where he has one more option year after that. So I think the Reds will give him one more chance. But, you know, he can't hit anything. He's got a K rate over 43%. That's just not going to fly. So he's got to change that drastically right away. Um, Bobby, Bobby Dahlbeck, similar story. You know, all these guys are just, like, striking out. Christian Pache, he can't even hit in, in uh, AAA. He was he had a 68 WRC plus at AAA. That's how bad he's been as a hitter. We know he's a elite defender. But we also know that um, teams don't really pay for defense. They pay for offense. And even uh, Billy Owens, he's GM, the A's, uh, admitted he's got to make some adjustments. So, And he's out of options after this year, so he may be, may be a DFA next year. You know, the A's, you know, they have plenty of room to play him, but they're trying to fix him. But if he's not fixable, then there's, nothing, there's no other option. I will pause there before I get into the pitchers. Any comments on the hitters? <clears throat> Um, I just wanted to clarify something you said pretty early on in that uh, when you say two years, you're not talking about two full years of service. We're not talking about right. guys that are entering their third year. They've already accumulated all those days of service time. It's, it's We have a faster clock than the service clock and then the prospect clock and things like that because what we're talking about here is not only how they perform at the big league level, but also how their team handles them because their team knows them better than anyone else. And so... Uh, talking about the, the example that always comes to mind for this is Franklin Barreto with the A's mm -hmm. where he came up and he just, he just got jockeyed around with the A's a lot. You know, they never gave him a full run of it at the big league level. And part of it's because he wasn't performing and they were contending. Uh, but he also just kept going back and forth between AAA and the majors. And when he was in the big leagues, he was sitting on the bench a lot. They didn't play him too much. And that kind of tells you what they think of him. They tell, it tells you that they don't think he's an impact major league player and they don't trust him enough, even over some of their disappointing options that they were playing instead. So yeah. that's why it's more of a, it's, it's two calendar years. It, and you look at some of the guys on this list. Yeah. I, I don't think Adele has 600 plate appearances in his career. I could be wrong on that. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, but just by the way, the angels have treated him, they've had, more than enough time to just run him out there every day and see what happens. And they haven't, you know, they, they've been out of, out of contention for so many days of the last few seasons. And he just really hasn't gotten full stride and hasn't done anything with the time that he has gotten. And that really tells you a lot about him. So, yeah. And typically we get comments like, Oh, they never like Yankee fans. Oh, they never gave Andujar a chance. I mean, <laughs> At some point, it's got to be on the player to prove himself. You can't just blame it on the on the team to say, oh, well, they yanked him up and down and they never gave him a chance. Matt Olson was yanked up and down, I remember, when he was first coming up. I think for two, for over a year, they he was on this, this you know, um, you know um, 
uh, he was on the plane a lot between AAA and the majors before he figured it out, and then he changed his stance and he was off off and running. You know, um, Josh Donaldson got yanked around when he first came up too. So guys will, you know, it's on the it's on them to figure it out. And you know, managers will say this: Look, you got to prove yourself. It's a tough, it's a brutal sport. You know, it's put up or shut up, right? And these guys are not making the adjustments, and so they're getting sidelined. And so you can't just blame the team for not giving chances, especially a team like the Angels who are losing, you know, who have, you know, no reason not to play him and he's still not doing it. So at some point you've got to put it on the player. And that's what we're saying here. Absolutely. Um, Do you want to go into the pitchers? Yeah. So I'm going to list a couple of pitchers that I get into. The first one is Luis Patino, who you might remember was the centerpiece of the Blake Snell trade from San Diego to Tampa. And he's just been Oh my God, he's a mess. Um, you don't see a lot of pitchers where their walk rate is higher than their strikeout rate, but that is rare, and his is. Um, he's got bad peripherals, and now he's got a shoulder injury. He just not put it, he has not put it together. Um, the good, the only good news is he's still relatively young. He was brought up as a twenty-year-old, and San Diego used him out of the bullpen. It seems like he he doesn't have the the mix of stuff or the maturity or the physical capacity to handle being a starter. So it feels like um, at this point, he may be only a reliever and given his health issues, you know, uh, a less than durable reliever at that. He has only one option year remaining as well. So Tampa Bay is running out of time to fix him, but they've got a challenge on their hands because he is a mess. Uh, I then go into Nate Pearson who's been on top 100 prospect list seemingly forever because <laughs> um, he throws hard and he looks like, wow, he's got great stuff. But that was like, you know, five years ago and he's still hasn't put together a season. You know, the most he's ever done professionally is 62 innings. And that was in 2019. And since then he's thrown 18 innings, 45 innings this year, 13 innings. The guy just cannot stay healthy. And so even the Blue Jays have finally admitted he's going to be a reliever only at this point. Um, I compare him to A.J. Puck of the A's, who was also kind of a former top prospect, former top five draft pick, um, who was injured a lot and finally at least has put together a decent season out of the bullpen. He's a reliever only at this point. But my point is, you know, his value, Pearson's value has dropped so much that, you know, relievers aren't worth much, especially ones who can't stay healthy. So, you know, his value is very low as well. Uh, but there's a bunch of other guys that you could put on this list. I mentioned the Andujar. Nick Senzel, I think it's clear that he's a boss now. He's gotten a lot of chances. Uh, Mickey Moniak. Uh, Jaron Duran. Um, <laughs> yeah, not not good. Uh, I've gotten some feet push, pushback on Alex Kirilov. Um His main problem is he can't stay healthy, but he's also kind of relegated to first base DH, it seems like. Uh, Carter Keyboom seems like a boss. Spencer Howard. Uh, does not look good. Taylor Trammell has been traded a couple of times. Looks like a fourth outfielder at best, but now he looks like he's, you know, he's somewhere in between fourth outfield bench guy or bust. Um, Sixto Sanchez can't stay healthy. Um, a couple of guys who, since I wrote this article, may be starting to turn the corner are Jared Kelenic. Very small sample size, but he looks good in his latest call up. And Luis Camposano, same thing. You know, we had these guys pretty much as, you know, their stock had fallen way down, but maybe they are finally getting it together at this last, last uh, uh, you know, the last chance. But look, this happens. You know, you mentioned Franklin Barreto, Lewis Brinson's another famous bust recently. Keon Broxton was a top prospect. Monte Harrison, many, many more. Victor Robles looks like he's a bust. He can't hit. 
Um, you know, the list goes on. Uh, but we wanted to kind of show that the main point I want to get across is that, you know, you can't just think of guys like Joe Adele and Jose Barrero as, yeah, they've still got a lot of upside because at a certain point you just have to kind of throw in the towel. And the, and the major league teams will as well. So from a trade value standpoint, there's not much left here. Yeah. Uh, one question for you, and I'll let you pick from, from either the guys you went more in depth on or from that last list that you mentioned. Uh, is there anyone in particular that just stands out to you as a guy you're more optimistic about than the others, you know, either in terms of carving out a major league career for themselves or regaining some of that value? I, I don't think I don't think I'm picking any of these guys to regain all of their value because they're all kind of in not the best spot right now. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but does anyone stand out to you from your list here from your article? I, you know, I think Kirilov deserves a, a little bit more of a look, um, just because he has been injured. Um, you know, Mariners fans are starting to get excited about Kellenic may have figured it out. I don't know. He had some deeper problems that I'm not, I'm not so sure about. Camposano is probably the one I sort of, yeah, I question like, yeah, you know, look, the other thing that we, we look at is front office decisions. Like in the case of Christian Pache. He was passed over by the Braves, who needed outfielders last year, and they signed, you know, journeymen like Guillermo Heredia and Abraham Almonte instead of playing Pache. And then they traded for not one, not two, not three, but four other outfielders at the deadline instead of playing Pache. All of that is a signal that they didn't have any confidence that Pache could hit, and it's proven to be true. And so when you look at the front office decisions, the same thing. I kept looking at Camposano and and seeing, okay, you know, uh, the Padres first gave him a look two years ago, but then they traded for Austin Nola. They traded for Caratini in the Darvish deal. Then they traded for another journeyman catcher, the Cam Gallagher. The list goes on. They, they traded for all these other catcher, Alfaro. Like, they were not giving Camposano a chance. And that tells you they didn't have a whole lot of confidence in him. And yes, we, he was still young, and maybe catchers take a little longer to figure it out. But that was a clear signal that the Padres just, you know, didn't have have any confidence in him i'm hoping he turns around maybe he's 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 gotten a little bit of a, a wake-up call and maybe now's his time um but that was another clear indication that uh he wasn't the kind of upside high upside prospect that people thought, of, thought he was yeah campusano is the, the name i was going to pull out here because he i like i said don't have all of these numbers right in front of me but aside from Nate Pearson and his injuries keeping him off the field. I think he has the least playing time of anybody mm -hmm. you mentioned in this article. Mm -hmm. uh, Campusano has 85 career plate appearances at the time of recording. And all of his performance in the minor leagues has been fine. You know, maybe a mm -hmm. tiny step back this year, 110 WRC plus that's, that'll still play. Uh, if as a catcher, the, the problem is, is he a catcher? Uh, there's questions about his defense and that's going to make it tough. I wonder if he's a guy where the stars might align pretty perfectly for him. Uh, maybe he starts testing some other positions. I, there's, a, there's a chance he already has uh, in the minors. I don't have those pulled up. But maybe he gets traded finally and starts to get more playing time on a team that can afford to just work with him at the big league level, doesn't have as small of a margin of error as the Padres do. But I wonder if he's a guy who could really benefit if and when they switch to an automated strike zone and he doesn't have to worry about framing, he can focus more on the other parts of his game behind the plate. You know, 
I, I, I don't know specifically what his problem is defensively. I'm, I'm no prospect expert. I'm no Luis Campusano expert. But it seems like what's happening here is he can't defend enough and doesn't have a position at the big league level to where he can actually get that exposure and see if his bat will play at the level. That seems like what's happening here. And I wonder if once he starts to get the opportunity, things, as you mentioned, catchers can be kind of late bloomers here. I wonder if things will kind of click and he'll he'll carve out a career for himself. Um, and then just pitchers are, are always a crapshoot. And with the kind of stuff that Patino and Pearson have, if three years from now you told me that either one of them was one of the best relievers in the game, I would not be too surprised, I don't think. I wouldn't be surprised if Patino figured that out and became that. I th- I'm a little bit more optimistic about him on the pitching side than I am about Pearson because it's just it's clear Pearson cannot stay healthy. And, um, you know, even if they only use him out of the bullpen, he's still going to get injured a lot. So I think he's a train wreck. Unfortunately, Patino is still a little bit of an inkling of hope that the, that the Rays can fix him or if not the Rays, somebody else. Uh, but just one last thought about Camposano. I've heard and seen a, little, a couple of clips that his framing has gotten better, like surprisingly so. Maybe it's too little too late, though, because framing as a skill set is probably going to go away with the automated strike zone at some point. Uh, but nonetheless, that is a sign that he has been working on it. Um, so, yeah, and, and the Padres are giving him more playing time now at catcher. So I think there's a little ray of hope for Camposano as well. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. And, uh, yeah, I'll link to this article in the show notes, uh, go ahead and give it a read. Uh, do you have anything else for this episode? Uh, no, just to say, you know, season's almost over. We're waiting for the playoffs, so enjoy baseball. It's a great time of year. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I won't miss watching one team this season that we both happen to unfortunately share <laughs> an affinity for. Uh, I'm not going to miss watching the A's. They're pretty miserable. Uh, but I'm going to enjoy the playoffs while also being very, uh, very much looking forward to transactions in the off season. And so it's always, it's always a double-edged sword this time of year. I always, uh, you know, I get excited for the off season to come so that we can have the trades and the free agent signings and the DFAs and the non-tenders and all of that stuff. But then the off season comes and it's like, this is miserable. This is so long. I want spring <laughs> training after like a month. So, well, at least we're not going to get another lockout. That was miserable. Right. You know, yeah. You can have a, hopefully it, a normal offseason this time. Mm-hmm. It, it could always be worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one last dumb note, just because we have a few extra minutes here. Uh, according to MLB trade rumors, these are the players represented by PSI Sports Management. All right. They're, they're, this is a list. This is a fun list. Kyle Bearclaw, Connor Brogdon, Cole Calhoun, Logan Forsythe, David Freitas, Taylor Gilbo, Griffin Jacks, Caleb Joseph, Corbin Joseph, Aaron Judge, Scott <laughs> Kingery, Dylan Lee, <laughs> Matt McGill, Rob Refsnyder, Trevor Rogers, Jojo Romero, Taylor Scott, Jimmy Scherfe, Nick Vincent, Chad Wallach, Keen Wong, Colton Wong, and Jordan Yamamoto. Okay, I, I think would you made wager. Your point. <laughs> I would wager that the gap in war between PSI management's most valuable player and second most valuable player is as big as it is for any agency. <laughs> well, you we know, got... Trevor Rogers had a good year last year. That was the other name that sort of piqued my interest there. Yeah, I think uh, so. I pulled it up. Colton Wong is at two point three wins above replacement this season. He's just having kind of an okay Colton Wong ish year. 
Mm. Uh, Trevor Rogers at 0.8. So it looks like, mm. at least for 2022 alone, Wong is in second place behind Aaron Judge. A measly like eight points, 8.8 wins behind something like that. Yeah. So uh, just 8.8 saying... wins, just an Otani behind Judge. <laughs> so you're saying the entire roster of PSI clients, basically, you add them all up, all the non-Judge ones, and they might come close to the Judge's war? I'd wager they'd probably be below, because I bet a handful <laughs> of these guys are negative this year. Yeah. So, and a lot of them probably just haven't played at the big leagues no. much, if at all. I've seen I a lot of David Freitas. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say, Connor Brogdon... He's a decent pitcher. No, I like Connor Brockton. <laughs> he, yeah. he always comes up whenever we do our like quality assurance for the updates and make sure that nobody's jumped too far out of line. He always comes up as I'm like, really? Connor Brogdon? Because I think he's in high single digits or low double digits or something mm-hmm. like that. But uh seems like he might have cooled off recently. I think the last time I checked, his ERA was a lot lower than it is now. But 340 ERA, 10.63K per nine. It's not bad. Good for you, Connor. Yeah, he's good. All right. He's a reliever, so he's not the most reliable yeah. of sorts, you know. Relievers yeah. up and down, but he's, you know, one of the better up and down ones. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. I think that's all for me this week. Are you good to go? I'm good to go. It's been fun. Yes, it has. So that'll do it for us. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the end of the season and uh, beginning of the postseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.